You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome to the Doctor's Lounge. Welcome back, Dr. Mike Karuchak, your host for this week. Thanks again for uh, joining us on America's Web Radio. So, Mick Jagger, for the introduction, and you can probably guess why if you have been listening to the news. Uh, we were all uh, very relieved uh, to hear that uh, Mick got through his uh, big heart surgery, uh, and uh, it's a, it is a great reminder uh, in a way, um, because the folks that uh, that we have admired and uh, and played the music since we were teenagers and back then were thumbing our nose at the older generation through our music, we have now become the older generation. And uh, a grim reminder, perhaps, of our own mortality that the folks we used to uh, draw as a fountain of youth are now becoming old enough to need big procedures to treat big medical problems. But one thing you might not have noticed, uh, unless you're a doctor and it's your job to notice perhaps, is some of the interesting details of uh, Mick Jagger's procedure. Uh, And as a voice doctor, the thing that caught my eye was that he actually had his uh, aortic valve replaced, a valve in his heart, uh, through a procedure that that lowers the risk of having voice problems, uh, and that does happen, right? We all also heard about Lindsey Buckingham, who had emergency heart surgery, and now he's got a paralyzed vocal cord. Uh, that is a risk uh, from heart surgery where you open the chest and do it in the conventional manner. Uh, Mick uh, came to the United States for his procedure, which is another topic we'll get to in a little bit. Uh, but he had his heart valve replaced with a catheter uh, in the groin, the same way that you do a heart catheterization, the same way that you put stents in the coronary arteries to keep them open, a balloon angioplasty with a stent. Uh, this takes that technology a step further, a big step further, and they are actually able to deploy an entire new heart valve delivered through a teeny little catheter that goes in the femoral artery in your groin, gets threaded up through the aorta into the top end of your heart where the aortic valve sits. Uh, and these are, these are miracle procedures. They're really cool. And from a voice doctor standpoint, I like it even more because it gets rid of that cracking of the chest. It gets rid of the risk to the vocal cord nerve, especially on the left side, which goes all the way down in the chest and does a U-turn and comes up into your voice box from underneath, uh, which is why on rare occasions, even as a voice doctor, I'll be the one that diagnoses the lung cancer because somebody comes in with a changed voice and a paralyzed cord. But uh, this procedure avoids that risk. And I found it very interesting, and, and I've got an op-ed in process that will hopefully be published by next week that uh, ties this into electronic medical records, believe it or not, um, because you've heard me go on and on this program about how electronic medical records were forced on us with no literature to support the safety and effectiveness of electronic records, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, you've heard me say that a million times, and I don't want to totally reiterate it again, except that there's been an article that's come out because, uh, called Death by a Thousand Clicks, 
which goes into a lot of this in great detail. I recommend it uh, as reading. It's too long to do uh, in, in one program. Uh, but with the recent release of Death by a Thousand Clicks, along with Mick Jagger's heart surgery, uh, makes for an interesting juxtaposition of, of two different ways to bring technology to the practice of medicine. So let's look at this uh, this transcatheter AVR or TAVR procedure. That's what Mick Jagger had, let you put a heart valve in through a little poke hole in the groin without opening the chest. But uh, there's a very good review article on the history of transcatheter aortic valve replacement. It turns out that the procedure actually had its origins over 30 years ago. Uh, by a doc named Dr. Cribier. I hope I'm pronouncing his name right. Um, but uh, he actually passed a, ca- a simple balloon first and got the aortic valve to open when it wasn't opening properly. But it, and, it, and it worked, but it turns out it doesn't last very long, um, that the diseased parts of the valve start scarring back together again. And, and you know, a year after you've passed the balloon, you're back where you started. So he and a couple of other folks thought, well, you know, why don't we just build a valve into a stent, right? We can stent coronary arteries. Let's build a great big stent that's big enough to expand into an aorta, and let's uh, let's sew a, a valve inside the stent because the whole thing will collapse down, and you can push it in across the aortic valve and, and inflate this thing, and, and as you in push the stent out, the, uh, the, the leaflets of the valve deploy, and, and instantaneously you've got a working aortic valve again. But to make a long story short, which I'm not doing a very good job of here, uh, they developed this technology gradually, right? It took them 17 years from the time they conceived it to the time they created the first valve. Uh, it was 2002 that the procedure was first attempted on somebody very, very ill in whom death was probably imminent with no other options. And they said, okay, you know, we're going to, we're going to try this the first time on a patient in whom such a first time try is appropriate. Uh, and it turns out it worked great. Uh, the patient was apparently near death and made a remarkable recovery from a cardiovascular standpoint. Unfortunately, they died of unrelated causes four months later probably had other medical problems to go along with their aortic stenosis. But the the concept had been proven. And so from 2002 to the present time, they have gradually developed the technology. They have gradually expanded the indications, what patients are appropriate. So now it's not just people who are very close to death and very, very sick from a, a, a clogged or stenotic aortic valve. Now it's folks that aren't that sick and and as they've gained confidence with the procedure they've refined the hardware refined the technology conquered the learning curve also not only the the device itself but how you get it there and the technique for doing it and ironically only i don't know maybe 10 days two weeks uh before mick jagger had his operation a article was published in the new england journal of medicine dealing with a thousand patients who were prospectively randomized, right? You need an aortic valve. You get randomized into the open the chest traditional procedure versus the uh, transcatheter procedure where you get it through the groin like Mick Jagger did. And it turns out that the patients who get the transcatheter procedure and don't have their chest open, they do better. They have fewer complications. They have better outcomes. They have shorter hospital stays. And I'm sure, therefore, lower costs. 
And this was all in low-risk patients, right? Remember, when this procedure started, it was only the very, very, very high-risk patients, the patients who were in whom probably death was imminent, uh, and now they've expanded to, you know, anyone with, uh, you know, a problem with their aortic heart valve that needs surgery, and that's fantastic. And then McJagger goes on to prove it at the individual level that uh, not only does he get a procedure that allows him to recover, period, more quickly because they had to, you know, delay a tour, but gets him out of the risk of what probably would have been a career-ending vocal cord nerve injury because although we can treat paralyzed vocal cords, um, you can't really treat them in singers to the point where you get them back to their prior level of performance. So here's what here's what health care technology is supposed to look like. This is what it's supposed to look like. You start small, you build slowly, and at every step along the way, the technology has to prove itself all over again. It needs to be safe, it needs to be effective, it needs to be practical, and it needs to be something that is the, the cost is reasonable. Uh, it's certainly at least an improvement over the traditional approach. And I think this story uh, with transcatheter aortic valves is a great example of how to bring technology to medicine carefully, appropriately, and along the correct timeline which from the time they inserted the catheter in 2002 to the study in 2019 that says this thing, this valve is pretty much ready for prime time, 17 years. 17 years. Contrast that with electronic medical records in which there was no studies. Really, there were no randomized controlled studies to prove safety and effectiveness, right? We've been over this at length on this show many times, so I'm not going to completely go over every detail again. But remember that meaningful use back in 2008 was based on a single article, also published in the New England Journal of Medicine, which was survey data, right? There was no experimental data. There was no measurements of whether uh, electronic charts were safe and effective. They just did a survey and found that that among the few people that were using electronic medical records in 2007 – roughly 4% of us at that time, that those folks really, really liked their medical records. Did you like your medical records? Yeah, I liked it fine. And that was the poor quality data that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine and was the sole basis for what I'm sure those of you in the audience who are docs remember is the Meaningful Use Program. Now it's morphed into something called MIPS Macra, but it's basically the same garbage uh, and has caused a lot of harm. And now we talk about this article again called Death by a Thousand Clicks. And again, I don't have time over even an, an hour to talk about all of it. Um, but they bring in some very frightening anecdotal stories. They bring in some very frightening numbers and statistics. And it's clear, it's clear that uh, health information technology, including but not limited to electronic medical records, is harming patients on a daily basis. It is killing patients, maybe not on a daily basis, but it is harming patients to the point of death commonly. Uh, it is harming hundreds of thousands of patients every year. And the article does a great job, and maybe in a future show we'll break it down, uh, of, of documenting exactly how bad the health information technology problem is to us in even in 2019 where you know a health IT industry has had 10 years and literally tens of billions of dollars if not more to fix the problem and improve the product uh, and yet all we get 
all we get from the health information technology community is these sort of empty marketing gimmicks like artificial intelligence, Internet of Things, uh, you know, interoperability, big data, uh, augmented intelligence, right? There's, there's two, re, there's two marketing hypes that, that have the same acronym AI, right? We have artificial intelligence and augmented intelligence. It turns out that 99% of everything that they label as artificial intelligence does not in fact meet the definition of artificial intelligence, not even close. And so we have a situation where, um, we we have a dire situation in health information technology. It, it's 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 not it's not funny anymore, so to speak. I mean, this is really hurting people. And 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 uh, the article "Death by a Thousand Clicks." It's not a short read because there's a lot to talk about. Uh, they they talk about folks who died because a life saving order uh, did not make it from the doctor's screen where he clicks the order button to actually get done. As a result, patients are harmed and patients even die. Um, so we got a big problem. So I'm glad, I'm relieved that uh, Mick Jagger's doing well. I'm a big fan, but uh, I'm also even more relieved that the uh, electronic medical record system that was monitoring his care hasn't killed him either, at least not yet. You're listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Stay with us. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge. Dr. Mike Karuchak, your host. Thanks very much for sticking with us. Hopefully you enjoyed the last segment uh, talking about Mick Jagger and how we connect that to uh, health information technology. Uh, now, at the top of that segment, we uh, were talking about uh, one other thing that has been mentioned far more, which is that isn't it interesting that you know a world-famous rock star uh, with, I'm sure, plenty of money to spend as he wished uh, – left his native United Kingdom and left the National Health Service to come to New York for his procedure. And, and of course, it, it, it now becomes a question of the National Health Service, and then that morphs into a question about Medicare for all for the United States, which is supported by virtually every single uh, self-declared Democratic presidential candidate for 2020. But uh, it highlights what we've said before, right? If, if, if you hate America's health system so bad, if you point to the life expectancy figures, which of course we've debunked, and the infant mortality figures, which we've also successfully dealt with, I think. But if you obsess with those numbers and you say, oh my gosh, we spent all of this money on health care in the United States and we're not getting our money's worth, isn't it interesting 
that that when you can afford to go anywhere that you want for care, where do you end up? You end up here, and you end up in the United States. And uh, you know, Mick Jagger got uh, got a state of the art procedure that lowered his risk of having a voice related, likely career ending complication, as well as one that, with recent data published just a few days before Mick had his operation, uh, shows that that transcatheter procedure is safe and effective and produces better performance numbers than does the traditional chest opening approach. And it's likely that we will see that that procedure proliferate rapidly, although it already has. Virtually every major academic medical center has transcatheter aortic valve replacement available. But now, I think, between the publicity that Mick Jagger gets and the recent literature that came out just days before he had his procedure, uh, I suspect that's going to throw gasoline on a fire. And that's good, because as we talked about in the last segment, this technology has been 17 years in the making, actually close to 30, depending on how you interpret history, as we discussed. But isn't it interesting that uh, when you have a choice, when you have a choice, and remember, you know, all of the Democratic debt presidential candidates, you know, including Bernie Sanders, want to take that choice away so that unless you're Mick Jagger and you can afford to leave the United States and leave a Medicare for all system, um, you won't have a choice. You'll be stuck with outdated technology and, and, and whatnot. Uh, and, and so, um, you know, with that thought in mind, I'm going to review the last other little thing I've written and got published last week that talks about, again, Medicare for all from a slightly different perspective, right? You've heard us talk about this a lot. You know, Dr. Hal had a guest on a couple of weeks ago that uh, talked about Medicare for all um, from the Heritage Foundation. And, uh, you know, that's a great conversation, all true. Um, the stuff I wrote up uh, occurred to me while I was on vacation uh, and is a little different perspective and maybe something that reaches the millennials, right? Because the millennials are a particularly difficult group to communicate, number one, the gravity of this decision about what to do about your healthcare system, and number two, the disasters that come with socialism in general, and for this particular conversation, a single-payer Medicare for all healthcare system. So on to vacation. Uh, this was my daughter's senior year spring break, my daughter market, right? She's 18 years old. Ready to graduate high school, you know, the class plans a big trip, sounds good to me. Uh, and, you know, we, my wife Amy and I, we like to go on these trips too. We're not the kind of parents that just say goodbye, see you later. It's a good excuse for us to go and have some fun and stay close to her because she's not going to be living in the house much longer as she gets ready to leave to go to the University of Alabama in the fall. So, of course, we go. The trip uh, was a, uh, one of these all-inclusives. Right, And you may or may not be familiar with the all-inclusive concept. This is where you pay, in theory, now in theory, you pay one price up front, which covers not only your room, but covers all the food you can eat and all the drink you can consume, including alcoholic beverages. So needless to say, this appeals to Margaret's senior class for obvious reasons. Uh, it appeals to us because we don't have to worry about the bar tab. Right, we can go outside the United States to the Dominican Republic. The drinking age is 18. They can drink without any issues, uh, and they don't have to pay for every drink, which is good for us. And so, you know, from that perspective, uh, you think, okay, that's going to be a, a decent deal. And it, and it did. We had a good time. I, before I start bashing on the all-inclusive thing with respect to Medicare for all, I'm going to say up front, I liked it. I would do it again. It was fine. Part of the reason it was fine is that we were only there five days. And so all the difficulties with getting access to food and drink that I'm going to 
outline here and then tie that to Medicare for all, um, you know, say I don't want to sound like I'm bashing the, the all-inclusive market. But uh, but so you, you walk into this thing and you, you arrive at the resort thinking, okay, you know, once they put the wristband on, um, that I'll have access to all the food I can stuff into my gut and all the drink I can pound my liver with and, and that that's going to be a great thing. Well, it turns out it's not quite that good and it's not quite that simple. So start with breakfast, right? We'll start from the beginning of the day to the end of the day. So you wake up and it's time for breakfast. Well, it turns out that, um, you know, they must have a dozen places to eat on this resort, at least if not more. But out of those dozen places, only two serve breakfast. And one of them is just a tiny little coffee shop. It's not really a restaurant per se. So you have two choices, right? One of them is a buffet style breakfast, which in theory is fine, except that, uh, I was in the mood for a little bit of French toast, and so did I find they had French toast? Yes, well, they had French toast. Isn't that great? I wanted French toast. They had it. Well, uh, I went to pick the French toast out of the serving pan, and the slice of French toast was welded to the bottom of the pan. There was no getting it out of the pan and into my plate. Clearly, that slice of French toast had been had been bonded to the bottom of the pan through days of heat coming from a sterno can and that uh, French toast was not to be on the menu unless I was willing to handle a mangled, ripped, destroyed, shredded slice of French toast, which I wasn't. And then you go and look at the other choices, and yes, they had a you know cook your own omelet place, or that you know you'd order it and somebody cook it for you, and that was fine and well. You know, all the other food was a little odd. The the cheese was a little bit watery, if you can kind of believe that. And you know, you kind of just about everything that you looked at in the buffet, even though you were hungry, you kind of went, I can't quite bring myself to put that on the plate and in my mouth. And so we said, okay, enough of the buffet. The other, so what's the other place we can go to? Well, the other place was just your basic coffee shop. It was a Starbucks wannabe. It was, uh, you know, coffee and donuts and pastries and that kind of thing. Except the coffee wasn't really coffee, right? I mean, you know, you can say what you want to about Starbucks, but the coffee's fresh brewed and it's human beings that do it with quality coffee and quality equipment. You know, Starbucks is not my favorite place personally, but you got to hand it to them. I mean, it is a quality cup of coffee, if not a fiendishly expensive one. Um, that was not to be had here. Here we had a very nice lady who would uh, take your order and push the buttons on the espresso machine, which is pretty much the same as the one that's in our doctor's lounge, right? So you like that tie-in? And uh, that you can get a cup of coffee at 2 a.m. if you happen to be there at 2 a.m. And it's just basically where you stick a little coffee packet in the machine, you stick a cup in the bottom, you push the button, and you know a minute later out comes your cup of coffee. Well, that's all this place was. The only difference was there was a very nice lady there who would say, what would you like? And you'd tell her and she'd push the button. Very nice. We saw her every morning for five days. We got to know her. She's very nice, but from a resource allocation point, she was not necessary. You know, it wasn't necessary to have her give us the half-frozen donut either, which was in the pastry case. Uh, On the other side of the pastry case was a sandwich case, and the sandwiches in there didn't move for the entire five days we were there. Um, those things sat in the refrigerator, fully assembled sandwiches, mayo and mustard and all. And I thought, heaven help the poor soul who has a lapse of judgment and actually tries to eat one of those. 
But um, but if you think about it now, the resort is like Medicare for all, right? An all-inclusive resort is like Medicare for all, right? Everybody's paid for already, right? And then, you know, individual episodes of care or in this case, episodes of eating don't have any cash transactions involved most of the time. So we talked about breakfast. What happens at lunch? Well, first off, lunch wasn't available until 1230. Now, that's a little weird, especially since breakfast was so spartan, shall we say, that after a minimalist breakfast, you got to wait four or five more hours before there's any food outside of room service available. 1230. Well, what happens at 1230? Well, you know, we paid a little extra for the Diamond Club. So you think if you get into the Diamond Club that, oh, okay, well, maybe everybody else and the kids have to put up with waiting for their food. But maybe in the Diamond Club, um, things will be better, right? Well, not really. Even in the prestigious Diamond Club, you still had to wait 30 minutes for a drink alcoholic or otherwise, and 45 minutes to eat. And weird things happened at lunch. Weird things happened. Like this this cart shows up with lobster tails, grilled lobster tails. And like, wait a minute. We, we, you know, breakfast was watery cheese and decades-old French toast, and now we got lobster tails coming out for lunch. Well, immediately, faster than I could react, there was instantly a line of 20 people for the lobster tails. The lobster tails were gone just that fast. So, you know, of course, just my luck, just probably yours too, right? Uh, You know, the last person to get a lobster tail was the person in front of me in the line, which left me right in front of the the cart. And I said, well, is there any more lobster tails coming? No, 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 there's not. So another person comes along and I'm like, hey, what about the lobster tails? Well, it'll be 15 minutes. Next person says, oh, it'll be six minutes. So, you know, 30 minutes later, more lobster tails shows up. We finally do get lunch, but the whole thing took close to an hour. Now, the lobster tails were awesome for lunch. I mean, how many, how many times you have lobster tails for lunch? And then, you know, dinner, you know, same idea. You know, the meat was okay because the steakhouse had a surcharge. Again, more money. And uh, But the, the seafood was scary. And uh, and trust me, I, I tolerated the consequences of that scary seafood for days thereafter, the details you can imagine. Um, but, you know, the whole thing was a problem, right? There was – the service was slow because it was understaffed. You know, there was only one person doing lunch and it took forever. Uh, meanwhile, at breakfast, there's people standing around pushing buttons and espresso machines that you don't need. Um, the food was marginal most of the time, except when you paid extra. Uh, and, you know, the service was, you know, terrible unless you tipped. If you tipped and you tipped your server, you got served instantly. As long as you kept the cash under the table coming, service was no problem. Food wasn't any better. The drinks were definitely better. You got better drinks. But it was all about the tipping. So what do we get? This is like Medicare for all, right? Sounds good. But in reality, the service is not good. The product is marginal. And, and the only way you get around that is to create an underground economy by tipping. So, you know, what does that sound like? Well, it would sound like what Medicare for all would be. Everyone would be reduced to the lowest possible level of service except for the people, the 1%, right, the ones that the socialists rail against, would be the only ones that have the extra cash to pay any money and get decent service. Decent health care. You're listening to the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Stay with us. 
The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Look, we're not talking about health care right now, but I will. The Republican Party is the and, and you will see this very soon, because Obamacare is a disaster. It's too expensive by far. People can't afford it. And the deductible is horrible. So the premiums cost too much. The deductible is horrible. The only difference between now and the other administration is that we're administering Obamacare very well. So we've made it 100%. I understand health care now, especially, very well. A lot of people don't understand it. We are going to be, the Republicans, the party of great health care. The Democrats are. They've let you down. They came up with Obamacare. It's terrible. I got rid of the individual mandate. That was the worst part of Obamacare because people were forced to pay a lot of money to get health care that they didn't want. It's a disaster for our people. We're not going to allow it to go. So we're coming up with plans. We have a lawsuit right now going where phase one of the lawsuit uh, terminates Obamacare, essentially terminates Obamacare. You know that. That's the Texas lawsuit. We think it'll be upheld, and we think it'll do very well in the Supreme Court. And if the Supreme Court rules that Obamacare is out, we will have a plan that's far better than Obamacare. Thank you all very much. I appreciate it. Thank you. Well, 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 there you have it. Uh, this was uh, less than 24 hours ago, uh, and this was not a Trump speech from 2017. The last time we heard repeal Obamacare as a battle cry, uh, this is less than 24 hours ago uh, with uh, two events happening. Uh, one was the um, a Justice Department filing with this uh, Texas lawsuit saying that they will not litigate the appeal of the lawsuit that attempts to throw out Obamacare. And uh, and then we have uh, uh, the president coming out in a full court press today saying that uh, they have renewed their commitment to make Obamacare go away one way or the other and replace it with something else. So after the Mueller report, after the Jesse Smollett or Jesse Smollett fake hate crime, after Michael Avanti, after the college admission scandal, the Green New Deal, funding for the wall, government shutdowns, stories on the latest and greatest Democratic presidential candidate du jour, uh, health care had been pushed out. 
you know, except for some occasional uh, mention of Medicare for all and that that had come back into the limelight, uh, partly because of AOC and partly because of all of the new uh, Democratic presidential candidates trying to one up each other on how progressive they can be. We've gotten some revival of the Medicare for all thing because of that. But but mainly for the last several months, health care has been largely out of the news. Until about 48 hours ago, when the court filing was done yesterday, followed by uh, uh, Trump's uh, speech on Wednesday uh, to the press uh, that you just heard. But in, in that little uh, message, uh, I think there was one uh, a quote that I think may tell most of what's going on here, which is this one. I understand health care now, especially very well. I understand health care now, especially very well. Okay. So, makes sense uh, in a way. I mean, you know, the president is two years uh, wiser about the presidency and running the country and, and health care than presumably he was two years ago when he was a newly minted president going after uh, the Affordable Care Act through traditional legislative means. Uh, but now it appears that uh, that there's a new plan. Because certainly now with uh, Democrats uh, controlling the House, you're, you don't have uh, uh, any chance of, of doing uh, – to succeed in 2019 or 20 the way that uh, they failed in 2017. So you've got to come up with another plan. Well, the Supreme Court's different now. Uh, the composition is different now. And we have this lawsuit that originated in Texas, which, uh, you know, they've engineered for this to, uh, to reach the Supreme Court. So let's, let's spend a few minutes unpacking exactly how the Texas lawsuit is is working and, and how this um, has uh, anything to do with uh, with what's going on. Uh, you know, I'm not a legal strategist. I'm not a legal scholar. I'm going to try to unpack this for you, uh, but uh, understand my limitations up front. So here goes. The, the lawsuit filed in Texas alleges that uh, Obamacare is no longer constitutional because of the uh, the tax law, the tax reform law that uh, that Trump signed uh, a couple of years ago, which eliminated the tax on the individual mandate. Because remember, the original Supreme Court ruling in 2012, uh, where everyone thought that Obamacare was going to get struck down and it wasn't, um, said that uh, you know the the government did not have the authority to force an individual to purchase something, right? That was the whole problem, uh, why Obamacare was argued non-constitutional in the beginning. And the Supreme Court said, no, it's okay, uh, in spite of the interstate commerce clause, because the law doesn't really force you to buy insurance. It simply says that if you don't buy insurance, you must pay a tax. And since it's not, it's not really forcing you. It's just saying if you don't buy it, you have to pay a tax. And if you do buy health insurance, you don't have to pay a tax. So it was sort of a de facto mandate rather than being spelled out. That was sort of a retrospective reinterpretation of the law by the Supreme Court in order to make it work and make it be constitutional. Well, fine, as far as it goes. Lots of folks disagreed with that. But now the tax reform bill now took away the tax on the individual mandate. So now there is no tax on failing to buy insurance. Now, Obamacare reads as a result of the, the, uh, the tax law, it simply says you have to buy health insurance. Well, the government doesn't have authority to make you 
by health insurance. It only has the authority to tax you, but the tax is gone. And if the tax is gone, then the uh, mandate is gone. And if the mandate's gone, then the entire uh, law is not severable, which is the other piece of the lawsuit. It says, okay, the mandate's unconstitutional. If the mandate's unconstitutional, the rest, the mandate's not severable from the rest of the act. Therefore, the rest of the act uh, goes out the window because it's entirely unconstitutional. Well, of course, that's getting appealed, but it's, it is technically, and this is another piece of this that's very interesting. It is uh, technically the um, the obligation of the executive branch of the United States to uphold all laws. This is a very interesting argument that was uh, put forth on uh, yesterday's uh, talk show by Eric Erickson here in Atlanta, who is on WSB. Uh, he laid this out very well, and I'm going to borrow some of that, but I am giving him credit. Uh, it was to say that it's it is the um, executive branch's constitutional obligation to uphold all laws. Uh, whether you have the the individuals involved, i.e., the president agrees with it or not. Um, however, once again, the um, the uh, indiscretions of the Democrats of the previous administration are now coming back to haunt them because it was actually Obama and his administration that set the precedent years ago when they chose not to litigate an appeal for the Defense of Marriage Act. And once it's done once, it can be done again. And so apparently, you know, they, they have cited um, the Obama administration and their actions to say, well, if Obama can do it, so can we. And so now we have a problem uh, and we're not going to uh, – We're the executive branch can now be free based on precedent to choose not to uh, litigate uh, the appeal. So step one is get this case to go to the Supreme Court. And pray that the ruling goes well this time. Perhaps the third time is the charm for Supreme Court rulings regarding Obamacare. Uh, and then that creates a vacuum because if Obamacare is struck down, uh, you know, that leaves a huge hole in the healthcare system. Because remember, this isn't as easy as simply undoing it, right? Although it is emotionally appealing, uh, it is, it is a, uh, it is a, an attractive fantasy to think that we can shove a stick in Obama's eye, metaphorically, uh, by repealing his signature uh, law with his name on it. Um, the bottom line is you really can't do that. That would not be wise. It would not be wise uh, because it is, you know, it has metastasized itself into the healthcare system so deeply that if you simply make it go away, you're going to leave lots of holes. Right, you can't leave 11 million Americans suddenly without insurance on an Obamacare exchange that no longer exists. Uh, and there are parts of Obamacare, you know, as much as you know, one might not like to face this fact. There are things that people like. People like having your kids on your plan till they're 26. People like the pre-existing condition issue and the protections that the that the law gives. Uh, people like the idea that you can't be rated on your insurance because of a pre-existing existing or be rated as much simply because of age. And so the idea that um, that you're just going to just make the whole thing go away and not replace it is a problem. And, and Trump understands that, I think, because he's talked about, and in the, the quote, the lengthy quote that I played you, that, that yes, that, that, that he understands that. The problem is how are you going to do that, right? How are you going to pass a replacement for Obamacare in a Democratic-controlled house, or at least one that, you know, we're willing to live with. And yeah, I'm not a political strategist, no more than I was a, uh, a lawyer a few minutes ago when we were talking about the law in the Texas case. 
But um, all I can think of is that maybe there's a little bit of arm twisting here or a little bit of – I don't know if blackmail is the right word, but but pressure you put on the Democrats to pass something because uh, once the courts say Obamacare is unconstitutional, it has to go away. And therefore, there is a lot of time pressure to be placed on some sort of replacement and – so now, you know, that's going to require some very interesting uh, political finagling to figure out, but uh, that's that's all I can think of. The problem is it kind of, from a political standpoint, again, I, I'm just an armchair quarterback here, and, you know, this is a, a podcast on health care, not politics. But, you know, we've now got a system going into 2020 where both parties advocate the destruction of our current health care system. Uh, one wants to destroy it by making it Medicare for all, uh, you know, basically like Britain's National Health Service. Um, and the other party wants to, um, you know, destroy 2,000 pages of regulations and, you know, countless other thousands of patients of regulations that were authorized by the original legislation and make this all just go away and think that somehow the system is going to continue to function function in in some kind of organized way so um i worry about that and again i i i don't mean to second guess political strategy because i'm i again i'm, I'm just not smart enough but but uh i guess i am indulging myself a little bit and hopefully you will indulge me as well to be a little bit of an armchair quarterback here but um i think we need to have some sort of positive message here uh that comes out of the administration instead of saying we're just going to appeal obamacare and you know talk in broad general Moralities about the Republican Party becoming the party of great health care. We're going to get a great plan, etc., etc. Uh, you know, the, the, that has been done before, and I think we need to come up with a bit more meat. And I, I think we need to talk about reforming the health care system using an economic paradigm instead of a political paradigm. I think it's, as soon as you talk about repealing Obamacare, you alienate half the country. Um, if you talk about salvaging Obamacare, you alienate the other half of the country. So how do you come up with something that brings everyone together? And I think what they need to do is, is take everything they've already done, which is great. Right, the um, the the, the st- they're talking about uh, you know the pharmacy benefit managers, the uh, short-term limited uh, duration uh, health plans, all this neat stuff, and roll this into a message that says we're going to look for the waste in the system. We're going to look for this to make this more efficient on an economic paradigm. Um, the end of segment one. You're listening to the Doctors Lounge on America's Web Radio. Stay with us. Hello, I'm Doctor Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on The Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctor's conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. 
The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge. Dr. Mike Karuchak, your host. Forgot to introduce myself uh, in the last segment. Sorry about that. We actually had so much to do. There just wasn't time. But thank you very much for joining me, Dr. Karuchak. Uh, thanks for having uh, having me in your life for a little while today. Uh, we're going to finish talking about uh, what's going on with the uh, recent revival of repeal of the Affordable Care Act, which is a story only about 48 hours old. And we, we just about finished the conversation in the last segment trying to figure out um, exactly how this is going to work, uh, try, trying to get rid of, uh, of, of Obamacare with a Supreme Court ruling um, rather than with legislation. Uh, I think we're going to go back to the bigger plan for the spring series of shows here and, uh, and, and bring you more of the guests that we uh, interviewed at the Orlando meeting. Uh, so, so I can get it all fit in the segment with, uh, without uh, further ado. Here's uh, Dr. James Pinckney. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge, sponsored by the Docs for Patient Care Foundation. We are mobile this week. We are in Orlando, bringing the entire Docs for Patient Care Foundation studio down to our annual meeting, DPC 3.0, Docs, I'm sorry, Direct Primary Care 3.0. Um, with me today is, is a repeat guest uh, from last year, Dr. Pinckney is back as the, uh, the CEO and founder, right, of Diamond Healthcare? That is correct. Thanks uh, for having me on the show again. I'm, Always I'm, a pleasure. Uh, well, it was a great show last year, so we'd be insane not to do it again. Um, so last year we sort of talked about the, the genesis of Diamond Healthcare, and you talked about things sort of up through the end of last year. So spend a few minutes and give us an update on how things are doing and where you're going with it. I'd love to. Uh, so again, Dr. James here, CEO and founder of Diamond Physicians. Uh, it's been a wonderful year. Uh, we've done a lot and, and changed gears a little bit, and we really focused on uh, scaling direct primary care in 2018 and focused more on employer solutions so that we could figure out a way to make DPC ubiquitous, make it so easy for traditional insurance doctors to step into our space and, and launch successful practices. So, you know, some folks, uh, even some folks we've interviewed here today have, have expressed uh, some feelings that, that it's that scalability question where all the marbles are right now. How do you scale up without losing the essence of what makes DPC so special? And, and, and that's a great question. I think what we've done at Diamond Physicians is, is try and solve that problem with a great solution. We call it the Diamond Direct Care Network. So it'll be a national network of uh, independent DPC practices. So they retain their autonomy and the, the skills and the things that make each individual practice special uh, and the things that make them successful in their region. Uh, but we, we link all these practices together in order to uh, attract large employers. And that's the biggest problem with scaling DPC is that how does the chicken and the egg come at the same time? The employers want the doctor network. The doctors want the employer network. And it's very challenging to bring them both together at the same time. So how do you do that? 
Well, we're trying to do it systematically, uh, and we have uh, 32 physicians in our Diamond Direct Care network right now. Uh, I'm talking about this issue tomorrow uh, to another 400 doctors, so hopefully um, they will all be as receptive as our first handful of docs that have joined the network. We've got unions. We have uh, large employers, hospital systems. We've got independent school districts that are all excited about direct primary care. And then what we've done is we've paired these employers um, as well with, with each physician in a different region in order to attract and, and provide services for employees that are outside of a demo, the, the concentration of the main headquarters. So if I've got a company, let's say in Dallas, Texas, and we've got three going on four locations there, but they've got 200 employees in Philadelphia and 100 employees in Orlando, another 300 in California, it's very hard for them to sign on just with our Dallas practice because they want to offer equal benefits to everyone. So it's a really important issue that makes it challenging. And the network, the Diamond Direct Care network that we're building will also allow independent practices to leverage the network and uh, close employer contracts in their backyard as well. So let's say I'm an independent DPC doc in one of these other markets that you're trying to grow. If if I approached you to join, what's what's the nature of the relationship that you offer? Right. So I wanted to make it seamless and to have absolutely no barriers to entry. So it costs zero. Uh, it's completely gratis. We are absorbing all the costs of building the network and the infrastructure and the uh, platforms that are in place. Um, it's non-exclusive, so you can join any network you want. Uh, and we also provide a HIPAA secure app called Doctor Link that we produced in-house to each and every doctor. You don't have to use it, but it's just something else that you can use to communicate with your patients if you want to. And all those things are gratis, complimentary. So there's zero risk to joining the network. Uh, and hopefully, if we get enough doctors, we can launch and then attract these employers and really make something special. So what's the business model from your end? I mean, that's, you know, the stuff that's gratis is good, but you obviously have to have a way to, to cash flow. And, and, yeah. and there is absolutely no sin whatsoever in the P word, which is that you do make some money off yeah, of this you know, profit. So how, how does that work? So we, we introduced the Google model. We want to give everything away for free and then figure out a way to monetize it later. And I don't know exactly what that will be. Um, there will be a network charge at some point because it is very expensive to build these networks. Absolutely. But I've, I've created deals where we lost money. And, and that's the, the play right now is to get as many doctors involved. Uh, and then at the end of the day, if we charge a small PMPM for the infrastructure what we put together, then we'll do that. But we have actually closed deals where the network gets zero. And I'm okay with that. Because at the end of the day, there's so many um, different ancillary pieces that have to come together for us to close a large contract that I will take a loss in the short term for huge gains and momentum for the DPC uh, movement as a whole in the long term. So you're seeing the same trend that we've seen with some other folks that have come to join me at the microphone today. And, and it's something I'm going to emphasize again to the listeners, which is that you are not hearing people come in here as guests and say that they want to build an empire. You're not hearing people say that they want to get rich off of this. What you're hearing is people say that they're willing to work for nothing or even take a loss because it's all about the patients and it's all about – getting doctors and patients together with nothing in the way um, 
How does that make you feel? That's exactly right. That's why I got into, uh, well, it wasn't called DPC 10 years ago, but that's why I switched from general surgery to family medicine. It was to truly provide affordable health care to every U.S. citizen. It's what drives me. It's been my vision from the beginning, and it's been an incredible ride watching this movement grow, uh, being defined as direct primary care and having the federal government give us definitions uh, and moving towards something that is tangible and real and getting closer and closer to realizing my personal goal of providing an outlet for every U.S. citizen to provide an access to primary care. It, it, it it's, should be a necessity. 60% of Americans don't have a, DP, uh, a PCP, and there's so many people out there that can't afford health insurance. The Affordable Care Act um, did the exact opposite. They made health insurance even more unaffordable. Exactly. I mean, the Affordable Care Act was, was nothing new. It was merely the next logical step in a decades-long trend to make health care more expensive, more regulated, more difficult to do. Uh, and, and, and thank God folks like you are, are working to reverse that trend and bring doctors and patients together in a pure environment. Well, I appreciate that. And then there's one more aspect of the network that we haven't touched on yet, okay. and that's the individual side. So we talked about the employers, but what I'm even more excited about is connecting individuals Americans to DPC physicians across the country. So January 1, um, the individual mandate is going to be lifted by an executive order from the president, meaning that um, citizens will not be required to purchase health insurance from an exchange or, or from their from their employer. 70% of Americans get uh, or receive health care benefits from their employers. So with that being said, we're going to have tens of millions of Americans that now don't have to buy an expensive gold plan uh, and can join the Diamond Direct Care Network. And we're going to be combining, we actually talked a little bit about it in the lectures today, short-term, limited-duration insurance products and DPC on our platform in a seamless connection where a consumer can purchase both right there at the point of sale, have DPC doctor and uh, a short-term, limited-duration uh, insurance product. And it's going to be a, a free market healthcare exchange where... Um, the consumers choose whatever, whichever has the best products, whether it be a health shared ministry or uh, a catastrophic backdrop that's truly insurance or indemnity plan. It doesn't matter. That's the beauty of the free market. The consumer chooses, and then they go onto the Diamond Direct Care portal and can pick a doctor, any doctor in our network, and sign up instantaneously. So are you gonna are you gonna sell the catastrophic wraparounds? Online as well, or well, I'm not an insurance broker, but we're right. going to have the ability. Yes, so yeah, we're going to have channel somebody else. We're going to channel um, as many provi- uh, providers of, of catastrophic backdrops as we can to make it a truly a, a free market, and they'll sell their product, and then we'll connect the consumer to the DPC doctor, and then they will sign up with that individual practice and sign their membership. So the DPC practice remain autonomous; they get to practice medicine the way they want to, and the and the consumer gets this beautiful wraparound product that truly is an all-in protective uh, healthcare plan. So how do you guys cover a couple other parts of the, of the equation, one of them being um, specialist access? Yeah, so I think that eventually specialists will join the DPC movement as, as well and convert their practices to membership medicine. Uh, we've seen rheumatology, we've seen cardiology, dermatology. Um, I'm working with some some OB guides. We just need to get around that facilities fee. So Dr. Keith Smith is here today talking about the Surgery Center of Oklahoma. Indeed. Uh, and if we can get some more free market surgery centers, then we can get around that facility fee for uh, the labor and delivery charge for uh, the birth, and we can have membership. OB 
uh, obstetrics as well. It truly works for everything. You just have to think outside the box and make sure that you're incorporating all the things that DPC stands for. Unlimited access, um, unlimited visits, um, you can text, email, that specialist, and an all-in, all-inclusive fee per member per month for the specialist services. It absolutely is possible to do. I can't think of one specialty that it's impossible. Indeed, I, and, and we're working with it in our ear, nose, and throat practice, trying to come up with some some potential there. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, we're we're very interested. And, in it as well. and when it comes to the clinic piece of a of a surgery of a surgical specialty, that can be included. Now, obviously, you can't include surgeries, but as long as you're providing prices that are price transparent and reasonable. Uh, just like Surgery Center of Oklahoma, yes. why can't you do these procedures cash and then still have that catastrophic backdrop for ten, twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollar procedures? But anything under, in my opinion, you know, five grand should be paid cash. Absolutely. How about um, some of the other pieces like prescription medicines, imaging, that kind of stuff? How are you guys working that? Out? So we've got a national network of. Uh, cash paid labs built imaging is a little more challenging right because there's not really a, a one conglomerate that has you know 4,000 imaging yeah. locations across the country so you kind of have to piecemeal it together and have different uh, networks in different regions for the imaging piece but I think with all the, the power of the DPC physicians Every DPC physician at this conference has negotiated cash pay rates in their backyard. So again, the Diamond Direct Care Network would bring all those DPC physicians together and therefore aggregate their lab and imaging costs as well. Prescriptions are more challenging because every state is different. In some states, like the state of Texas, we cannot uh, prescribe or dispense physicians in our office. We can prescribe them, obviously, but we can't dispense. In other states, you can dispense and and have great wholesale costs on prescriptions. So that's going to be hard and it's going to take a little legislation state. to yeah. kind of unlock that for exactly. you Exactly. Very good. Okay, running out of time uh, here at the end of the segment. Um, we'll pick it up on the other side. You're listening to the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Stay with us. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.